0: Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara. Today as Prime Minister Trudeau arrives in the Baltics, we speak to Lithuania's ambassador to Canada about the war in Ukraine and why neighbors such as his country, Trudeau Russia, and Vladimir Putin best, say this time we absolutely mustn't stop. We look into why wild pigs are running among the parts of Canada, particularly the prairies, where they came from, and how to control them. But first, as the UN says, more than 1.7 million Ukrainians have already fled fighting in that country, with nearly 900,000 crossing into Poland. We meet an Alberta woman who packed up her bags and headed to the Polish Ukrainian border to help those in need. It's kind of hard to imagine what we watched this weekend as apparently there were ceasefires in place to allow Ukrainians to flee cities under siege by Russia in these humanitarian corridors. At which point, Russia began shelling those very corridors once again. There was also one road, a report of one road that was being apparently used or at least earmarked to allow uh, civilians to leave that had been mined by the Russians. So, can you imagine telling civilians they can leave and then killing them? I mean, that's where this war is reached. And it's, you know, there's, it's, there are no words for it. Overall, though, of course, the humanitarian crisis is huge now. The largest fastest growing refugee crisis in Europe since the Second World War, according to the UN. Um, And Russian forces are intensifying their shelling, food and water, heat, medicine, all scarce in cities under siege. Again, the UN Refugee Agency says the number of people who have fled the war in Ukraine has now increased to more than 1.7 million people, 1.7 million. Olga Okarenko is one of those who made it to Romania, fleeing the destruction in her hometown of Kharkiv.
1: Whenever here somebody asked me where I'm from, and I said Kharkiv, the expression, the facial expression was like as if I arrived from Hiroshima. I saw, I saw the reaction on the face,
2: like they, they were
1: feeling sorry for me. And then I remembered everything that was going on there, and I, and I
2: broke, broke down, and it's very difficult.
0: One of those many fleeing Ukraine right now. That's Olga Okamrenko from Kharkiv. Again, Russian cities or Russian forces continue to pound Ukrainian cities with rockets after announcing these limited ceasefires. There's another one apparently on the way uh, in a few hours. We'll see how that works out. One of the places badly hit, of course, continues to be the city of Mariupol, the southern port city. No electricity, food shortages, hospitals operating in basements. And a second evacuation attempt of up to 200,000 people on Sunday failed because once again, the Russians started shelling. So you can imagine why people are fleeing. The majority of them, nearly 900,000 have crossed over into Poland after bringing with them what little they could carry, unsure if they'll ever be able to go home. For the past week though, waiting for them on the Polish side of that border is one Alberta woman who packed up suddenly left the family farm in Bentley, Alberta and flew to Warsaw and then drove towards the border to help. She's now on the front lines of this immense humanitarian crisis. And Heidi Baumbach joins me now from Reshov in Poland, near the Ukrainian border. Thanks so much for being here tonight.
2: Thanks, Ben. No, it's great to have a chance to catch up and chat a little bit.
0: Tell me a bit about how you got there, I mean, or where you are now and how you got there. <laughs>
2: Well, right now I'm in Dreshof. Um, That's very convenient as it's about an hour away from the border. So close proximity. Um, I left Canada sometime late last week, I think Friday-ish, and um, ended up in Warsaw because that's the city I'm a little bit more familiar. With. And obviously, as you follow the needs, that takes you a little bit closer to the border. And a very kind man let us use his apartment. So here's where I am.
0: Tell me about. I mean, you're a violinist. You have a music studio in Alberta. You're you you live on a farm. You um, sold wheat to buy the ticket, which is which is how. What made you decide that this was going to be? Because you made this the decision quite suddenly, obviously.
2: You know what? There, you you can take a number with that. There, I think are a lot of people scratching their heads. It was a flurry of information to be processed in a short amount of time. I mean, obviously there was the gut inkling that there was something that I needed to do over here. Some, some need to help with, um, also understanding the area. I knew that I had to get here sooner rather than later in order to actually be of some, and you're seeing it now. People are so much more organized than they were a week ago. But a week ago, there were some very, very different needs and concerns, and it was important to me that I arrive in time to be able to help address some actual needs here rather than just, you know, being in the way.
0: Tell me a bit about what inspired you to go. What was it that, I mean, I think a lot of us have been horrified and shocked or or at (sighs) least, you know, troubled by the images, wanting to help. But what made you decide that the right way to help would be to, to pack up and go?
2: Gosh, Ben, you know, and that was the thing for me, too. And I think, you know, in our area, especially this day and age, we're almost desensitized to a lot of this stuff. I mean, I'm very guilty of this. I'm incredibly distanced and cynical. And, you know, the world is a dark, scary place. And a lot of times, you know, you just see what pops up on the news and shrug your shoulders and what can you do, right? But for me, for me in this situation... (sighs) First of all, it's, it's my roots. I very, very strongly feel that, you know, both sides of my family came from this region. If my grandparents, if my great grandparents hadn't made the choices that they made, this would be me. This, this very much could be me had my ancestors not made the decisions that they made and the calls that they made. And, you know, I do, I own a business. I have a house. I have a farm these people don't have money to buy deodorant you know like there's there the, the only difference there is birthright and this just it seems so personally unfair that there's so many of us in canada who are there simply because of the decisions of people 3 4 generations removed and there's people coming over every day with only the clothes on their backs and what little's in their suitcase and You know, there's very few people that can just pick up and hop on a plane, but I happened to be in a season of life where I could do that, and I just, I couldn't not. I couldn't, I couldn't not.
0: What did you find when you arrived? I mean, I know it can always be sort of discombobulating, so to speak, when you think, (laughs) I'm going to go help out, and then you land someone, you're like, wow, this is big. Where do I go? What do I do?
2: You know what, Ben, to be honest, It wasn't discombobulating. I was very impressed. Um, I've always had a really deep respect for the Polish people and Polish society. And obviously, I'd come to Warsaw at a point when the trickle-up effect of what was going on at the border hadn't yet reached the city. But I've honestly just been so impressed and inspired. You know, Poland isn't a country with resources or pockets anything like Canada's but the way they've responded the way they've organized the way they I really if anyone were to ask me they really are doing everything they can here for the people on the ground yes the border situation was very chaotic for the first few days and the city I'm in Rushov, is about an hour away and you could definitely tell there were very high concentrations of people for the first few days. But, you know, they've done their best to streamline, to disperse. Um, they're loading people in charter buses. The lineups are organized. Yesterday when I went to the refugee camp, they had signs posted. It's, it's very clear that everyone that can step in and help organize is organizing. And it's, it's really been, it's been kind of special to see the progression of that as time goes on.
0: Yeah, tell me about those early days, because I think a lot of us um, watching what was happening at the borders understood that there was this great increase. Because we spoke to people in Ukraine who were heading for the Polish border, that there was this sudden surge of people leaving. Uh, what was it like when you first got there, and what were what were you doing?
2: Well, the first the first day I went to the border was I was waiting to pick up a car full of people and. I mean, obviously you can already tell from the chaos, the breakdown in communication you're having. You don't know if the person you're going to meet is going to be there that hour or that day or the next day. And, you know, the thing that struck me, some of the criticism I'd encountered in coming over here is, oh, there's going to be so many A groups. You're just going to be in the way. And yes, but anything big takes time. And those first few days, I will never forget this the people were coming across the border and the only aid that was there was these three or four guys in safety vests with a shopping cart full of toilet paper. And, you know, there were maybe some bottles of water there. Someone had moved in a few porta potties, but those first days, you know, no one had anticipated this. No one had planned on this and you know, to these people's credit, they were doing a great job of emergency services and medical care and getting people in and out, but traffic was congested. It was, it was a very confusing time.
0: And you were just helping people, picking them up and getting them to places where they could stay.
2: You know, already by that point, Ben, it had gone to a point where you could hardly rent a car. You could hardly, already people were anticipating what was coming. So the fact that I ended up with a rental car, it was pretty much the last one in the airport. And that was, you know, that was very early on in these days. And safety is a concern, you have women and children walking across the walking across line was about 60 hours long, at that point. And you have women and children crossing, you know, in in very vulnerable states. And so to have someone there able to meet them and, you know, be a safe person, that was very much in need at that time, it still is. But Again, there's organization there now so that when these people are crossing, they're very quickly mobilized into the correct where they're supposed to be. But at that time, there was so much confusion. It just it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the safest environment.
0: I'm speaking with Heidi. So I'm speaking with Heidi Bomback at Alberton, who is right now in Poland, helping uh, with Ukrainians crossing the border into that country, fleeing the war at home. After this, we'll talk a bit about the people she's met and what she remembers about who they are, where they've come from and where they're headed. That's after this. I'm back with Albertan Heidi Baumbach, who's speaking to me tonight from Poland, where she's been volunteering to help all those crossing uh, the border from Ukraine, fleeing the war, heading into Poland. Uh, Many more than half a million people now already have crossed from Ukraine into Poland. Uh, Tell me a bit about the people you've met, because it must be such a variety of people from places and the stories they must be telling you.
2: Oh, Ben, it's been you really you really do see the best of people you're catching them at their most vulnerable, but also their most real. And, you know, the kindness I've seen, even just from, you know, the guy helping me figure something out at the gas station to the owner of this apartment, you know, there was a mix up on Airbnb and this guy had already lent his farmhouse to another family of refugees. And we arrived here at this apartment and he had his, Laundry hanging up, and he had his bag packed. And you said, "You." He said, "You come in here. I'll find somewhere else to stay." Um, you know, you just. I I've had heartfelt conversations calling. You know, my banking headquarters back home. I've had customer support with my cell phone provider have a heartfelt conversation. You. It's a commonality of, yeah. It's just it's there's something about it that does still bring people together. Just that acknowledgement of. The difficulty of the times, I think.
0: Because you did rent an Airbnb to house people, right?
2: Yes, exactly.
0: Uh, Tell me about the people you've met coming from Ukraine.
2: I have met, well, I thought I was going to be, again, the breakdown in communication. Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to be picking up a car full of orphans. I had heard that they were getting drove to the border and needed someone to take care of them. Obviously, I work with children for a living. So this was something that was brought to my attention is something that I might be able to be of assistance with. And I showed up to pick this car full of orphans up. And there was a cluster of like at least 12 people standing there that somehow I was supposed to be doing something with. Right. So it was what it ended up being was it was a family that was working in affiliation with an orphanage over there. And, you know, with Ukrainian culture, the family unit being such a strong bond force, And also the reality that a lot of these women were crossing without their husbands. It was a large family of siblings traveling together with their small children, which were all similar ages. So um, thankfully I had this apartment here and we all just kind of crammed in it and everybody got a warm shower and, you know, the bathroom lineup, we just kind of figured out and kids all crammed in one little hide a bed and, you know we made grocery runs and got stuff for borscht and it was it was somewhere that was safe and it was somewhere that you know you you just need that time to regroup right
0: yeah and are they moving on from from where you are who's who's with you tonight
2: tonight i'm waiting again the mm-hmm. the communication leg it's actually a um, one of our translators from a news crew that was here called me out of the blue this afternoon and said that he had an elderly woman he'd come across and could she pop over in 15 minutes and would I have a place for her? And I said, you know what? Yes, I think tonight, tonight I can make that work. So that was two hours ago. So we'll see if she shows up here at some point. Um, one of the biggest logistical limitations is mm-hmm. transportation right now. Right. So, you know, a lot of these people are just at the mercy of whoever can give them a ride when.
0: What are they bring? What are people bringing with them across the border? And what are they telling you about what they've just seen?
2: That's a really good question, Ben. Um, what I've been seeing here, you know, the kids, obviously kids are what you first notice. Um, the kids are very happy to have some space after sitting in a vehicle for five or six days. They're happy to run around. They're happy to do somersaults on furniture. You know, they're happy to blow up balloons and, and you know, throw them around the room. The kids are very happy to just have some space and mobility and you know I even sense that with the adults they're happy to go outside for a walk um obviously the nurturing tendencies the nesting tendencies there's been so much joy here in just having a kitchen and being able to cook a meal being able to go to the grocery store and pick out fruits and vegetables and you know that that comfort food of you craving that one meal that you know your mom always made and having the freedom to be able to to prepare that
0: What are they telling you about about what they've fled, what they saw? Because I understand that some of these families are coming from, from a war zone.
2: Oh, Ben, it's nothing really prepares you for that. You know, there's a thing that we do with our girlfriends where we'll just, you know, sit up talking until three and four in the morning. And nothing really could have prepared me for the conversation going into the neighborhood of. The night that the bombs started dropping and, you know, they, they tell stories about, you know, they, they went, we went to the church and we pray and we pray, you know, going to the church to literally pray because bombs are dropping. The one woman um, pulled out her phone and showed me this video and everyone was sitting in a semicircle like we would in a, at a bonfire, except it was in some sort of concrete underground structure and you could hear the bombs falling in the background and she just pointed to one woman and she said, that's my mom.
0: Hadi Bombak, thank you so much for speaking with me tonight. Keep up the great work.
2: Awesome. Thanks, Ben. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Well, the Prime
0: Minister, who was in England earlier today, is in Latvia tonight. Prime Minister Trudeau there for meetings with the leaders of Baltic nations, including Estonia and Lithuania. All three former Soviet republics are, of course, NATO members and on edge, needless to say, as Russia presses ahead with its invasion of Ukraine. The Prime Minister will discuss NATO's assurances and deterrence measures with his Baltic counterparts. U.S. Secretary of State Blinken was through there today, he went to Latvia and Lithuania and told them about, assured them of NATO protection and American support as he made those visits. Of course, faced with a belligerent neighbor in Russia for decades now, they have long had a particularly astute view of the danger lurking for the rest of Europe and beyond and long warned of Vladimir Putin's imperial ambitions. They also say they were long ignored. Joining me now is Lithuania's ambassador to Canada, Darius Skusevicius. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here tonight, Ambassador. Good evening. I know that you were mentioning you've you spent a lot of time in Ukraine over the years. I guess just your initial reaction to all that's happened in the last 10 days. I know that there have been warnings for years from, from Lithuania and other uh, Baltic countries, but to actually watch it happen, it must have been um, a frightening time.
1: You know, uh, our our joint history with Ukraine uh, goes uh, goes uh, centuries uh, back to to the Grand Duchy when we lived uh, lived together, and uh, and they are our brothers and sisters, you know. And uh, thirty plus years ago, that country, same same as us, uh, decided to be independent and and go its own path, you know. Uh, then uh, milestone uh, was, I would say, in 2013, when Lithuania was chairing, uh, presiding uh, European uh, European Union Council uh, of Ministers, and uh, and that uh, president at that time was supposed to come to Lithuania and sign uh, uh, sign association agreement with European Union, and then he refused. Uh, which was followed, you know, with uh, with the Maidan and, and and all the events. Then uh, Crimea. Then uh, then Donbas. And you know, we 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 were are and will always be with uh, with uh, our Ukrainian friends. And we we assure that every country has uh, a right of uh, self determination, and that country clearly stated that uh, they want to be a, a part of uh, european family they want to be part of nato and uh, what is what is happening now it's it's just unacceptable it's it's uh, it's even difficult to to explain and understand how uh, this unprovoked uh, invasion uh, can be happening in in 21st century so so you know, for us, for us, uh, we we are following the situation with a uh, uh, very deep deep uh, grief, uh, and at the same time, we are doing everything we can, being a rather small country, to to help and to support Ukrainians in in all possible means. We were the ones uh, who you know who were training together, by the way, with Canadian uh, military. We 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 were having a training mission in in Ukraine for for uh, seven, eight, eight years, and uh, uh, we were the ones who were providing uh, lethal uh, weapons uh, from the very beginning uh, for them to be able to self defend and to protect their country. So it's totally unacceptable, and and you know, uh, from what we see now, uh, seems uh, like the uh, Kremlin and the and Putin uh, were were thinking that they will be able to take over Ukraine in forty eight hours, which was a very wishful thinking. And uh, and what is happening now is you know the it, I would call I, I wouldn't uh, find uh, another word than uh, desperation when they started you know bombing civilian buildings when when they threatening with. Uh, you know, getting close to nuclear power plants and, and, and uh, other things. So it's just unacceptable, and the uh, Western world uh, cannot accept it. And I think that uh, our reaction was, uh, was really strong on, on what is happening.
0: Um, for years, you and Estonia and Latvia had essentially a war- warning the world that, that Putin was not to be trusted on this. Do you feel like you weren't listened to properly, or are you surprised that it took something like an invasion that we've seen to actually finally unite other NATO allies?
1: Yes, we, we have a very, very specific relation. Let's, let's put it like this, to, to, to the big neighbor, to the east. Uh, uh, we were occupied for, for almost uh, 50 years. Uh, then, when we declared uh, our independence, uh, uh, actually, it's uh, this week we will celebrate 32 years. Uh, you know, in in months to come, they they were trying to overtake uh, legitimate government with uh, with the tanks in uh, in main streets of uh, of Vilnius, and they and they failed. You know, so uh, and and you know from. From the very beginning, uh, I would say in the in the modern history, in uh, in uh, recent decades, two thousand eight uh, had to be a clear wake up call and signal for for Western world when uh, when Russians just came and uh, invaded and took over twenty percent of Georgia. Uh, then in two thousand fourteen, uh, they took over Crimea. Then. They started the uh, war by by the proxies in uh, Luhansk and uh, Donetsk uh, regions of uh, of Ukraine, and we were telling each and every time uh, the the Kremlin, like uh, president of uh, of Russian Federation, uh, clearly has the imperialistic approach, and he wants to restore so called Russian world and. Uh, and uh, and this is uh, this is very very dangerous uh, scenario. We we were telling from the very beginning, and therefore we were always saying that uh, sanctions must uh, must be painful. Uh, that person and, and his country must pay the price of doing uh, what is unacceptable and and, uh, and uh, unaligned with uh, international norms. Therefore, you know, for, for us. Unfortunately, we, we saw all, all the signals and therefore we, we were always telling that uh, we should help more. Look, Ukraine was uh, a nuclear country and, uh, and uh, by the agreements uh, ensuring their security, they gave up all their weaponry. And where, where we are now, you know, our responsibility is to help them protecting them themselves.
0: Back in 1994, of course, Lithuania's ambassador to Canada, Darius Skusavicius, is speaking with me. We're talking about the war in Ukraine. Of course, Lithuania borders both Russia and Belarus, uh, two of the aggressors in this conflict. Tell me a bit about how much more dangerous is it now in the Baltics than it was before? If if Putin is testing his luck in Ukraine, obviously remind listeners that that uh, Lithuania is a NATO country, has been since 2004. Um, but how much, how much danger do you think you and your, and your neighbors are in right now, given what's happening in Ukraine? Yes,
1: yeah, so talking about uh, our, our region, about Baltic countries, uh, first of all, we have to have in mind that uh, uh, Belarus uh, is also participating in those uh, military actions against Ukraine. Uh, planes are, are are landing and taking off uh, from uh, from Belarus. Uh, Military is being pulled at the border, etc., 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 which uh, which shows us the uh, Russia coming even closer to our borders, uh, being uh, militarily fully incorporated thanks to Lukashenko. To uh, to you know, they, they are at the border of, of the Baltics from, from both sides with Kaliningrad and, and the Belarus now. Therefore, uh, security architecture uh, changed dramatically, and uh, and seeing that uh, one country unilaterally can ju- you know unprovoked uh, unprovoked can start the war uh, shows that shows us uh, unpredictability. And uh, this leads to the need to rethink the security architecture of, uh, of Europe. And we clearly see uh, first, uh, first signals and uh, addition of the troops uh, from Germany, additional troops. Uh, today, Secretary Blinken, Secretary of State Blinken, is, uh, is in Lithuania. Uh, again, announcement uh, about additional uh, troops coming from, from U.S., Canada's decisions to increase uh, their troops in uh, in Latvia. So uh, I think everybody understands that the security environment is changing, and uh, you know. But uh, we won't be scared. We just uh, need to continue doing our homework. Even even Germany, if you are following uh, recent statements, uh, agreed uh, decided to increase uh, their defense spending. You know, so this shows that uh, all Europe understands the threat coming uh, from the East and uh, is getting ready for that.
0: A threat. of course, that your country had been pointing out, as you mentioned earlier, for a very long time now. I'm speaking with Lithuania's ambassador to Canada, Darius Uh Right after this, we'll talk a bit more about NATO Article 5, um, you know, the, uh, the, the article that says that, company, that countries will come to the defense of another member if attacked. And again, the security architecture, as uh, Mr. Skisavicius was, was mentioning. We'll be back with that after this. I'm back with Lithuania's ambassador to Canada, Darius Skusovicius. He's speaking to me tonight from Ottawa. We've been talking about the invasion of Ukraine. Of course, Lithuania, a NATO member since 2004, uh, borders both Russia and Belarus. Uh, Mr. Skisavicius has spent a lot of time in Ukraine as well. Just from your perspective, as someone who knows Ukraine so well, where do you think this war is going?
1: Nowhere. Nowhere. So, sorry for my, for my blunt answer, but uh, from what we see now, and uh, I think nobody in the West was, uh, was expecting uh, such an uh, outcome, and uh, Russians uh, were claiming to be, you know, one of the strongest militaries in, uh, in the world, and we see where they are with uh, with civilian resistance with uh, with readiness of uh, of Ukrainian military it uh, it leads nowhere but uh, but definitely you know what uh, what was just recently voted in in UN general assembly uh the world must uh, do everything uh, we can to stop the aggressor to stop To stop them from from killing uh, innocent civilians, including uh, uh, children, uh, women, including bombardment of uh, civilian uh, infrastructure, um, houses, hospitals, uh, kindergartens, etc. We have to do everything we can to stop him.
0: Would that include a no fly zone?
1: that includes uh, you know with fly zone it's uh, a lot of speculation and uh, as as i understand from today's talks in 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 europe uh, there is an agreement to continue helping ukraine to protect its uh, airspace I, I wouldn't go into specifics but we should know that it's uh, it's uh, very easy to to shout out no fly zone But we should uh, count uh, all the, all the consequences coming from that, uh, which is also direct involvement into, into military conflict of, uh, of NATO, which, uh, which means that, uh, which, which means uh, many, many different uh, things. You know, I wouldn't go into detail, but uh, yes, the West understands the need to help Ukraine to protect its sky and uh, looks like uh, additionally to to stingers to other protective equipment uh, western community is ready to continue supporting them and increase the level of support to help them to protect the sky
0: how important do you think it is this time to yeah. make sure that vladimir putin is in a situation not to do this again i mean how much how important is it to, is it to see this one to the end whatever the end may look like
1: i i, I think that uh, everybody understands the importance and uh, and significance of the ongoing work is because uh, you know with uh, we starting this war uh putin and uh, kremlin russia violated all possible international agreements including minsk agreements including uh, uh, UN charter including uh, follow-up documents uh, Helsinki final act etc 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 so this shows us that uh, we we cannot uh, rely on on the agreements and uh, uh, you know Ukraine what what after you know what's next uh, will it be Georgia will it be Moldova or will he target uh, uh, Baltic countries or Poland, so uh, it's uh, it's our war uh, in uh, in 21st century, and uh, Putin has to be stopped.
0: I'm speaking with Lithuania's ambassador to Canada, Darius Skusevicius. We're talking, of course, about the war in Ukraine um, and the view from Vilnius of Vladimir Putin and Russia at this point. Tell me a bit about about NATO's how NATO has helped Lithuania and what more you would like to see from NATO allies such as Canada to ensure your protection?
1: You know, I, I think uh, the changing security architecture uh, clearly shows us that uh, we have to rethink, as, as I was mentioning before, uh, European uh, security architecture. And uh, if, uh, if we were talking uh, about uh, uh, air policing, uh, and uh, that was the uh, actual and still is uh, actual mission uh, in, in the Baltics. Uh, looks like it's time to start speaking about uh, air defense and uh, much stronger control of, uh, of that space. Uh, we see increase uh, of uh, number of soldiers. But of course, every country has to do its own homework and uh, modernize military uh, take the lessons uh, from uh, from what is happening now and to adapt, rearrange and uh, prepare militarily to avoid uh, to avoid uh, further escalations and, and, and worse in Europe.
0: Because your country spends more than two percent of your GDP on defense uh, as NATO asks, Canada does not. Do you recommend now expect to see other NATO allies start to increase their defense spending to at least meet that commitment?
1: Look, I, I think it's uh, up to every country to, to decide. Uh, as far as I understand, uh, this is the commitment to, to be spending 2% of uh, GDP on, the, on, 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 uh, on defense uh, matters. And Lithuania is doing that already for, for several years. Uh, even uh, now, we're even talking about uh, 2.5%. Uh, maybe even this year, and we are even talking uh, today. I've heard my president uh, in, in the interview saying uh, and speaking about the uh, possibility to increase it to to three percent of uh, of GDP.
0: Darius, it's Thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate your insight, um, and uh, and of course, the friendship between Canada and Lithuania continues. Thank you. The problem with pigs, this may not be an issue everyone is familiar with. I wasn't really that familiar with it. I saw another article this weekend about it and thought, I I want to talk about that tonight. So wild boar, it turns out, are running riot, and that's a bit of an exaggeration, but they are running amok to a certain extent in parts of the prairies and other parts of Canada and leaving a bit of of a path of destruction in their wake. Here's what they sound like. Okay, you get the point. Um, big, smart, furry, adaptable to cold weather, it turns out, quick to reproduce, and always, always hungry. What my next guest calls super pigs. So where do they come from? Where are they going? And how do you stop them? Dr. Ryan Brooke is an associate professor at the College of Agriculture and Bioresources at the University of Saskatchewan. And someone who's been researching these surprisingly shifty swine for more than a decade, just one of a few in the whole country. Welcome to the show, Dr. Brooke.
3: A uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks.
0: So tell me about I mean, for those listeners who don't know this story, this is a a problem with wild pigs. Where do they come from?
3: So this we don't have any native pigs here in Canada. So these were all by definition introduced. And what happened in the 80s and 1990s was there was a push to diversify agriculture away from sort of conventional old ways. And so we had elk ranching and emu farms and wild boar farms. And so these wild boar were uh, domestic wild boar were brought over from farms in Europe to fill farms across the prairies, including numerous places throughout Alberta. Alberta is one of the bigger players in that. And so the idea was the reason to raise them for meat and to a lesser degree have these high, high fence shoot operations where you could go and, and quote unquote, hunt an animal inside a fenced compound. Uh, and that worked to a degree, except the market never really took off. And so there was always escapees that were going under fences, through fences, over fences. I mean, they're, they're quite uh, much like Houdini in being able to get out. But even worse was when the market kind of collapsed after 2001, a lot of people just cut the fence and let them go. And that's where the problem really took off. And these things, of course, are are very large. Uh, The biggest one we've handled was uh, 638 pounds. So just uh, almost 300 kilograms, absolutely massive. And they're very hairy. And so large size and fur means that you can survive a Canadian winter quite well, actually, and they thrive. And then, of course, some of these initially come from Siberia so we shouldn't be shocked that they've done but I think we are surprised how successful they've been and and living in the wild they eat almost anything they have uh, six young per litter on average and so we've just seen this absolutely exponential expansion of these across the and and indeed the the overwhelming part of the problem is here on the Canadian prairies. How is it I mean
0: you, you referred to them at one point, and I think you just mentioned why, but as super pigs because of their ability to adapt. And it seems like they're almost tailor-made to survive in uh, in a place like Alberta.
3: Absolutely. You have animals that are originated from Siberia and very, very cold environments in Europe and Asia. Uh, so we shouldn't be that surprised they're successful. But in fact, we even made them more super by breeding them. And so one of the things that were people were told when they raised them on farms is if you want a bigger animal and uh, larger litters and even indeed a domestic pig has an extra set of ribs, so you have a longer animal. So you crossbreed them with the domestic pig and that's truly what made them super pigs is these are almost anything you'll see running around the landscape on the Canadian prairies is actually a domestic wild boar crossed with at least in, to a little degree or in, in many cases to large degree with domestic pig. And so that the, the really big animals, those monster pigs that you see, the four five, six hundred pound animals, those are surely hybrids. And that's what's made them animals that already have large litter sizes and, and do well even that much more turbocharged.
0: I can't imagine running into a 600 pound crossbred wild boar. It's uh, it's, it's, it seems, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned it in in a recent article, but they do cause just a ton of destruction.
3: Uh, yeah, they're, they're listed, you know, a bunch of experts came together and said, let's make a list of the hundred worst invasive species on the planet. And uh, wild pigs were a clear, uh, clearly put on that list. they, They destroy environments because one of the things about pigs that's different than our native wildlife is that they're rooters. They get their nose in the ground and they tear the ground apart. So elk and deer might come and graze and feed on some vegetation and and barely even tell they're there. Whereas pigs come through and the ground is torn up and ripped apart and they don't have sweat glands like humans. And so to cool off. They go into water and mud and they thrash around and they they wallow and during that time they defecate in the water and then we get salmonella we get e coli we get you know microorganisms that can affect human health and water quality gets destroyed so they tear up environments they eat anything from uh insects to ground nesting birds to uh, amphibians you can cut open a stomach and see nothing but frogs uh they eat lots of agricultural crops that's one of their biggest concerns in the U.S. right now, they do $2.5 billion in crop damage every year, as far as they could tell in the continental U.S. And so while our numbers are nowhere near the U.S., we're, we're on track. Uh, we're seeing this exponential increase right now. So we could certainly start to see millions and, and eventually into the billions if, uh, if this continues as bad as it is
0: speaking with Dr. Ryan Brooke, associate professor at the College of Agriculture and Bioresources at the University of Saskatchewan about the problem with wild pigs. Um, I understand, of course, now they're encroaching on urban areas. So now more people are paying attention to this issue.
3: Well, that certainly has uh, made it important to, yeah, I think it was easy to ignore if you were living in a city thinking that's an urban problem. But we know from their uh, of course, these things have a global distribution everywhere except Antarctica. And they are major problems in cities around the world. If you go to Berlin right now, of course, an absolutely massive city. There are many resident populations of wild boar there um, in little city parks uh, all over the place. And so they are firmly established urban. You go to southern U.S. states and there are uh, problems of, of, of rural areas, but they are coming into cities as well. So it is becoming more and more recognized as a potential urban problem. And looking at the distribution, one of the major outcomes of our research over the last twelve years is documenting the spread of these pigs across the overall Canadian landscape. And when you when you look at that distribution, you see that indeed there have been problems for a long time of pigs near cities, and there have been a number of sightings of pigs inside cities. And so that's a part of our ongoing research right now is looking at you know when when and and what will that look like when pigs start to show up in cities and and worst case scenario actually start to become established and living full-time or nearly full-time within city boundaries
0: are they dangerous to humans they,
3: they can be uh, they're generally speaking they're more nocturnal and uh, thanks to hunters they tend to avoid people because there is that landscape of fear but there was in 2019 there was a woman uh, taken down and killed by uh, a group of wild pigs in uh, Texas uh, in, a, in this is in an urban environment. she was right standing between her car and her house and that uh, was taken down and killed. So it's not common, but these animals are very aggressive, especially around food and and you see some uh, problems in Asia where these animals learn to hang out around grocery stores and they actually run at and scare people coming out with their groceries, they drop their groceries and run and then the pigs grab that food. And so as they're incredibly smart and they're always hungry and they will literally eat anything. And so that combination is where the challenge comes in is that they will, they will be aggressive for food. And uh, so I expect there, while we're not uh, likely to see a lot of, of widespread, it, it, the potential for them a, lar- a large group of animals with razor sharp tusks is uh, needs to be taken seriously, for
0: sure. And we always talk about how smart pigs are. Um, I guess it, I, I I understand it to be true. In that case, I guess the, the million or billion dollar question is, how do you how do you stop it?
3: There is uh, a real challenge, especially once they become established like they are in Canada now. Uh, early detection and rapid response is key, much like a house fire. You need to be on it really quickly and you need experts. This is not a DYI situation. You don't go out with your your 12 gauge you got from grandpa and try and take care of this yourself. This is absolutely calling the experts and Alberta has that. So Alberta has this amazing squeal on pigs program. So if you Mm -hmm. see pigs, much like you jump on your phone and call 911, if you saw your neighbor's house on fire, pick up your phone and call squeal on pigs and uh, they will come and deal with it. And so they use ground traps and, and, uh, and rifles if needed to uh, remove animals. And, And one of the challenges of course is, That if they get into urban areas, then some of those tools uh, that have been used, we've used helicopter to capture them very effectively. uh, A lot of those tools become much more challenging, if not impossible, in cities. So there is a different. There are different impacts, like, you know, animals getting into gardens and and actually cemeteries are often damaged a lot by uh, pigs moving into there. And so the tools need to be a little bit different in trying to capture animals in urban environments. But trapping is one of the best tools in the toolbox.
0: And we are, in fact, seeing them move towards, as you mentioned, towards is this something we can expect to see in all major cities on the prairies?
3: I think some more than others. I don't think we're going to see them in Victoria anytime soon, likely. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you look at our map right now, we have occurrences, for example, of pigs on, on three sides, east, west uh, and north of Calgary. And, uh, of course, I know from my time living in Calgary before I came here was that, uh, you know, that River Valley, uh, moose coming down the valley is certainly not unheard of and showed up on campus when I was there. And so there's a real concern for Calgary there, especially with the River Valley, which which is great for so many values for recreation and wildlife and everything, but also means that can be corridors for animals like wild pigs. So certainly some cities more than others. Um, uh, Edmonton and Saskatoon are probably on my radar as being likely to be the first. But uh, uh, yeah, there's sightings, you know, not that far from Canmore as well. And so... So southern Alberta is not without risk. And the problem with these things is they can go from two animals to 200 animals so quickly. And, you know, whereas some problems sort of are relatively slow and you've got time to think and react. uh, Really with pigs, what I would recommend to any city is have a plan now and a procedure and, and work this out and have a strategy in place now rather than trying to be reactive and go, oh, my goodness, we just saw some pigs running around Tuscany uh, in Calgary. And uh, what are we going to do about this and scratching your head and trying to respond? Because there is no time you need to get those pigs out. Those things are reproducing continuously. So there is no breeding season. They're just having babies year round all the time. And so, and it's only 115 days from pregnancy to, to giving birth three months, three weeks, three days. And those babies are on the ground and, and they become sexually mature in perhaps four six, eight months. So this can explode from wow, we saw a few pigs in some part of Calgary to we've got resident pigs and they've just uh, you know had a number of litters uh, incredibly quickly. So the, being proactive is absolutely my best advice for sure.
0: Dr. Ryan Brook, thank you so much for your time tonight.
3: My pleasure. Good to talk to you, Ben.